I want to open up to Mark chapter 3. About 100 years ago, there was a pastor, an Anglican, Anglican bishop in Liverpool, England, named J.C. Ryle, who wrote a really boring titled book called Expository Notes on the Gospel of Mark. He had these words to say about the passage we're looking at today, and I find them true even after 100 years. It says, it is a dreadful fact, whether we like to allow it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally imagine that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they thought that they had not got everything that their merits deserved. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the garb of humility. It is the most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps men back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips in the bud spiritual desires. Let us watch against it. Let us be on our guard. And I find that interesting talking about the heart of Pharisees, the heart of the religious establishment, because that's kind of who I am as a pastor. And uh, someone who grew up in the church with my dad being a pastor, when we read through these stories of Jesus, I often times find myself uh, in the shoes of the Pharisees. And it's important to, to, to set that up because uh, what we're in in Mark chapter 2 is we're in the series on Mark is that there's five controversial stories where, where Jesus is like sparring with the religious leaders of his day. And these stories happen like back to back to back. And uh, we, we looked at one of them last week when Jesus he- heals the paralytic and he says, not only are you, are you healed, but your sins are forgiven. And it tells us the scribes of the Pharisees didn't like that language from Jesus. And, and then in Mark chapter 2, he calls Levi. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the calling of Matthew, this tax collector, uh, who was this outcast, who was this, you know, he was this unpatriotic person that had sold out to, uh, to, to the foreign government. And, and Jesus calls him to be a disciple. And again, the Pharisees are like, why are you hanging out with, with this guy, these sinners? And then there's a story about him being and his disciples are questioned about fasting. Apparently, everyone else is, is fasting. And, and we, you know, similar to, I don't know if any of you uh, for Lent gave up anything uh, this week. Um, we, were, we were talking about that with my family, and my, my uh, seven-year-old Ezra said, I'd like to give up school for Lent. And, <laughs> but, okay, probably do something else. But um, Jesus, they're, they're questioned about why they're not fasting. And then there's these two stories about the Sabbath. And one, Jesus and his disciples are walking through this grain field and uh, eating, eating uh, the, the, the corn off of, they're, they're just, they're, they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. They're working on the Sabbath. And there's this uh, dispute that breaks out. And we have this famous line where Jesus says, man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And I am Lord of the Sabbath. So this is where the story is picking up in Mark chapter 3. It's this uh, back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we'll start in verse 1. It says, another time Jesus went to the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Those some people are the Pharisees, and uh, they're looking to accuse him. So looking for a reason, a legal reason, this is legal language to go after Jesus. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, 
stand up in front of everyone, because apparently he's like the first time guest, right? Like, that's not awkward. Brings, brings him up in front of everybody and says, look at this guy's hand. Like, I don't know what that was like, but Jesus brings this man with a shriveled hand up in front of everyone. And then he asked, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But the Pharisees remained silent. He looked at them in anger. Jesus is angry. He looks at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Some of you have heard the story before. Uh, You hear it and you think, I want to take pity on this man that Jesus wants to heal. What's the big deal? Why would this be such a big deal? And what we find is that in this story, there's the imagery of this withered hand and also a hardened heart. And when you have this encounter with Jesus, the man with the withered hand is healed, and the Pharisee's heart is hardened towards the healing. The withered hand, the hardened heart. I have found that the gospel has a way of, of doing this. It, it has a way of comforting those who are afflicted and suffering. And it has a way of afflicting and making uncomfortable those who are comfortable and maybe even entitled. It has, it has this way, it has a, a message that I've experienced in my life when I've gone through painful seasons. It's like, it's something that brings life and healing. And at other times it's something that challenges me and draws me out of my comfort zone. You, you hear this in the words of Jesus where he talks about that, you know, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's, this is something that's refreshing. And other times this message is challenging. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It has a way of comforting those who are afflicting, afflicted and afflicting those who are comfortable. In this story, the, the man with the withered hand is healed. There's, there's restoration here for uh, this, this ailment and it hardens the heart of the Pharisees to, who don't understand this story. Well, if you, you know where the Pharisees are coming from, they're, they're uh, concerned about the Sabbath because for them the Sabbath is a big deal. The Sabbath is this day that is set apart. It is holy. Uh, it has been established in the creation of the world. When they look back at the early creation poems, there's this day where they're, the seventh day where, the, where God rests. And so we're called as well to rest. In fact, one of their greatest commandments says to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. This is a big deal for them. This day is supposed to be set apart from any other day. And what would happen is when you, you start to, to, well, what does that mean, set apart? Does that mean you can't golf? Does that mean, what does a day off look like for you? Well, if this is a holy day, a day where, where you are in communion with God and you're not doing other work, there becomes all sorts of like definitions of what that means to take the day off. In fact, there's a book uh, that the, the Hebrews came out with that I can't pronounce, but it had 39 different like, definitions or forms of work that you would have to abstain from. And it, they got real particular about, like, what does this mean? How far can you walk on a certain day? Like, you can't prepare food, but you can eat food. Uh, I, I, one of the, the rules was so specific that, like, if, if a wall fell on somebody, uh, you could go and remove the bricks to uncover that person. And if they were alive, you could help them. And if they were dead, you had to wait, like, a day before anyone could get them help. I mean, like, they, they get all real nitpicky about, like, what, what is defined as work and what is not. And when it comes to like what Jesus is doing here is they're looking at him and they're like, is he about to heal this man? Is that going to be work? 
for Luke, who's a doctor who writes another, is there like a bird flying over me? Yeah. Okay. First of all, that's terrifying, but hope, okay. I got this thing about birds. Anyway, okay. Uh, Luke points out in this, this story that this guy's right hand uh, is the one that's shriveled. And so uh, for him, it, it's, you know, for like the 90% of us normal people who are right-handed, right? Like, it, he probably can't work because of it. And Jesus, is, as he goes about healing him, there are certain things that you could do for healing and you couldn't. But it really came down to, as long, you, could, you could help somebody if you're not making the injury worse, but you couldn't try to make the injury better. The Sabbath was something that, was, that, that they kept holy, that they had these really strong definitions about what work meant. And uh, I think it's hard for us to even understand the devotion to such a day. I mean, in our culture, we have, you know, like Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. And uh, like the Kanye song, right? But like the, the Chick-fil-A, it's so weird culturally that they would just take the whole day off. And I don't know about you, but how many times like Sunday afternoon, I just want to go get nuggets with my kids or like a peppermint shake. And then you go and you're like, ah, oh, it's closed today, right? Those stinking Christians, like taking this off. And I'm, a, I'm like a pastor. And it's just like this, you know, it's not convenient. But how much more so it was for these people, their devotion, that they were, they were hoping to honor God and, and so concerned about getting this wrong. Some of the extreme version stories of, of what comes out of the Sabbath was there was this war that was fought with the Maccabees a couple hundred years before, before the time of Jesus. And the Syrians who are, are like Greeks at this point or something come in and they're fighting this, this war and the Hebrews go into this cave and they're hiding and the Sabbath comes up and the Syrians say, why don't you guys surrender? And they say no and they go in and they, they, they light the caves on fire. And, and because it's the Sabbath, the, these people won't defend themselves and everyone gets wiped out. But 100 years later when the Romans come in, the great Roman general Pompey, who's like Caesar's you know, rival, uh, he storms... Jerusalem, and he knows, like, on the Sabbath, I'm going to build all of these, like, siege rams and, and, and gets over the walls because he knows they're not going to fight back on the Sabbath. This is how extreme these people took this no work, keep this day separate, keep this day holy. This for them was the law, the way that they would honor God. And these Pharisees are looking at Jesus as he's about to heal this man, and they're like, Do you know how significant this is that we don't do work that could be pushed off to the next day? And they're waiting to catch Jesus in this. And here's what we find with Jesus in this encounter, that Jesus chooses love over the law. He chooses to love this man over the law. What he realizes is what had started this pure motive of honoring God had become this entitled religious ritual that actually could rob the life out of like connection with God. And Jesus says, no, this, is, this Sabbath is created for us to experience the fullness of God's goodness. And, and as I am here, I'm restoring this man's hand. The, the, the ritual was for, to give life. Commenting on this, William Lane says, in their concern, the Pharisees, for their legal detail, they had forgotten mercy and grace shown by God to man when he made provision for the Sabbath. In the name of piety, they had become insensitive both to the purposes of God and the suffering of men. Jesus' anger was tempered by a godly sorrow for men who could no longer rejoice in the tokens of God's goodness to men. And when Jesus restored the man's hand, he demonstrated what it means to be good and to preserve life on the Sabbath. 
Moreover, he provided a sign of true observance and joy of the Sabbath. As the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus then delivers both the Sabbath and man from the state of distress. This is about love. Another Jesus says all of the laws of the prophets are summed up in this. Love God and love other people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors as yourself. And here Jesus chooses love over the law. Also in this encounter with Jesus, Jesus gets angry uh, and distressed at the stubborn hearts. It points us that there's this outflow of God. God gets angry in scripture, and, and so often it's, it's with people that should just know better, people who have taken advantage of others, people who, uh, they're, they're, they have this graceless religion. They're so caught up in the ritual of it. They forget the life that it offers. And here it says Jesus is angry and he's distressed at their stubborn hearts, the stubborn hearts of the, the religious establishment. These people who should know better, they, they know everything about their law, they know everything about their scripture, and here they still miss Jesus. That's something that I find uh, very convicting in my own life. You could have it all make sense in your head and your heart hasn't aligned. Sometimes our, our heads get too far ahead of our hearts, us being good church people, and we forget this love that Jesus has come to restore, to heal, to set captives free. Their stubborn religious hearts keep them from experience what Jesus is up to, what God's purposes are. They're insensitive to the suffering of people around them. A couple things that I found that, that create stubborn religious hearts. One is uh, we start adding rules to God's rules. We start adding, you know, defining 39 different ways of, of what work means on taking this day off. And we can get real particular about that. And sometimes we need those definitions. Those definitions are good. But what happens is instead of these sacred rituals that, that form us to be like Jesus or form us to be like what God has designed, uh, we, we can create a, a burdensome uh, of, of the rituals and, and they actually get in the way of the life that Jesus is, is here to give. The sacred rituals should always be life-giving, not burdensome, uh, not enslaving. Sacred rituals like the Sabbath, and, and, and if you find people who, who are able to uphold the Sabbath and find joy in it, it's something that forms them to have union with God, to have this uh, day where God just pours into them. I know for me, I can always tell in my life I start to burn out and, uh, and get exhausted when I'm not upholding Sabbath. But, but when it's something that I'm, I'm legalistic about and have to stick to and actually keeps me from experience in God's goodness, we're doing it wrong. This happens with a lot of things, but we start adding rules to God's rules. Second thing we do is uh, we use the Bible as binoculars instead of a mirror. As religious people, that happens. We use the, the Bible as binoculars instead of a mirror. What scripture does is it, 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 it grounds us in reality and with the reality of our own condition, how, how we are. And, and, and for me, reading through it, I, I find you know, convicting passages like these Pharisees because I know that that's who I am. I, I can be like these Pharisees. And the problem is when we use scripture to, to look and to point out and look with binoculars and focus on all the sins of all the other people around us. And, and I'm really good at this because I could be cynical and I could tell you everything that's wrong with the church and the Western church and, and the people in my church. And, you know, I, 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 can, I could pick apart things. Here we have the Pharisees looking closely at what Jesus is doing so that they could catch Jesus in the midst of this act. Instead of saying, 
allowing scripture to look into our lives to challenge us. We use it to go after other people. Then the third thing is that uh, we, we love rules and ideas more than we love people. We, we fall in love with the rule. We fall in love with our own ideas more than uh, we fall in love with just serving other people, loving other people, connecting with other people. We get caught up in the ritual. For these people, they would rather protect their tradition than see this man healed. They're trying to decide what's better, and Jesus shows them it's about restoring this man's hand, and they're furious with him. We love the rules, we love our ideas more than we love people. What I found is that this Pharisee heart actually works like both ways. Sometimes it's, it's the, the legalism of organized religion, but then there's also this thing that happens where, where people come out of like this, this legalism where, where the hearts feel so hardened and they, they like, you know, come out of this, this experience in the church and they're bitter and they're angry and they, they have all this like pain from that experience. And what happens is now they have all these different convictions about life, but that legalist heart follows them. And Phariseeism happens both ways. It's all about having this hardened heart, this prideful heart, where our ideas become what we love more than people. Eugene Peterson uh, tells this famous story about a window. That It's a story I've probably shared before with, with some of our people. You know this. But, but Peterson, uh, this pastor that ended up retiring up into Montana and was uh, living out in, at this cabin and and writing great books. And uh, one of the, the things that he uses as this example of, of fair, having a Pharisee's heart, he talks about uh, imagining that you, you, you're in this big cabin out in Montana and you have this huge window. And the window overlooks the forest. It overlooks the mountains. Um, it overlooks uh, a river. It's beautiful. You can see animals running through the window. You can see big storms come in. You can see seasons change. It's just this, this place of, that just feels sacred as you just sit and, and, and look out and gaze into the beauty of creation. And then one day you, you notice a, a bird flies by and there's <laughs> droppings that hit the window. And you think, well, we can't have that. And so you go and you get a bucket and you go and you, you, you wash the window and you clean it. Then a storm rolls in and you realize that there's, there's streaks from the rain on the window. So you go out and get the bucket again and clean it. Then the grandkids show up, and they, you know, all their dirty fingers are just putting fingerprints all over the window. And so you pull out the bucket and, again, cleaning it. Nothing can mess with this window because the view is so gorgeous. And you, you, you end up buying buckets and squeegees and even scaffolding to try to make sure that this window is clean all the time. And you, you take pride in it. You're so excited about how, how clean this window is. You might have the cleanest window in, the, in America but you haven't looked through it for years. When that happens, you know you've become this Pharisee. You've fallen in love with the rules, the idea, the window, and you have missed gazing on the beauty of creation. That happens with us in our religious lives as well. What Jesus offers us is, is to gaze into the beauty of who he is, the life that he invites us to. These things that we do, they form us, these rituals that we have are important, but we don't want to miss Jesus with it. For the Pharisees in this story, their hearts have been hardened, and this starts to escalate. 
for them. And eventually it leads to them taking Jesus to the cross. There's the man with the withered hand who he comes into the presence of Jesus and he's healed. And there are these Pharisees who just don't like how Jesus is doing it. It doesn't fit with their idea of the way this is supposed to work and their hearts are hardened toward it. This week with starting Lent, uh, we looked at uh, on Ash Wednesday, the Psalm 51, these beautiful words were, the psalmist says, to create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart, something inside of me. It goes on to say this, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. To restore unto me the joy of your salvation, Lord. This life that you offer us of freedom, this life where we experience your goodness, something that, so how often we have to return to, Lord, continue to work in my heart so that I can live in the joy of the life that you offer. We're going to close today with uh, a couple songs. And uh, as we think about the words in this story, where there's this man that's healed, something that should be celebrated and excited, and there's this response from these Pharisees where they're not celebrating the healing. They're more concerned about it being done their way. They're more concerned about tra- their tradition, keeping this day holy. They've gotten the cart in front of the horse. I think that's the right metaphor. Jesus offers us life, offers us to live a life of love, to join him in this restoration something we don't want to miss in the midst of everything that we do, that we experience Jesus' goodness. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for stories like this. Stories that are life-giving and also convicting. And we see your work here on earth, Lord. We see how you're interacting with people who are suffering and how you're interacting with people who think they've got it all figured out. There's something humbling and uh, convicting about this, Lord, is how quickly our hearts can be hardened. Whether it's things that have been done to us by other people, whether it's our experience with people who our religious, whether it's our ideas that we fall in love with. We want to have your heart for people. We want to have eyes to see people as you see them. And so Lord, we ask that you would create in us a clean heart. That you would restore to us the of your salvation. that you continue to guide us and shape us and mold us to be more like you. Give us eyes to see, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.